1: Is this on? I think so. I think it's on, yeah. All right, you ready? Yeah. Okay, let's begin.
0: Hold oh, on, I'm totally <laughs> making The just... Army Air no, Forces no, has announced that a flying <laughs> <laughs> disc Small,
3: has yeah, been well, found. That's well, it. Is now in it the all rises to the top of the stomach where it's going to be expelled, expelled
4: a when technical you belt. Call, it
2: Chimpanzees, gorillas around right. its hands also learn human sign language.
5: Every Have form you. of life has a way of sensing the world around it and is able to communicate in some way. So we're saying give peace a chance, you know, like nobody's ever done it before.
1: It's just one of those things that's included in the laundry list of what it means to be alive.
5: Let's see, I undergo metabolism, check. I've got a capacity for growth, check. I phone five with unlimited texting plan, check, check. I maintain homeostasis, check. It's just one of those things about life. I mean, my car doesn't talk back. Turn right in 50 feet, tire pressure low, and clean your windshield.
1: You parked under a productive bird's nest.
5: Well, it turns out that cars can sense their environment. I mean, they can tell something about how much gas they have in their tanks and the outside air temperature and stuff like that. But, you know, communication is not essential to a car, and for a living organism, it is.
1: And there are lots of communication modalities, and they're key because living creatures need to exchange information about all sorts of things, resources, the environment, predators, mates, they need to share emotion. Talking is just the obvious mode of communication for us.
5: But it's not the only way of expressing yourself. I mean, you can wave your arms. That's a technique favored by tube men at the used car dealership and Italians Okay, that one's hard to see here.
0: What? I'm a totally making gestures with my hands. Check out this one. It has universal meaning.
5: Okay,
1: now can you do a tube man accent?
5: What? I'm totally making <laughs> gestures. No, I can't. Okay. Or we could emit chemicals in the form of odors that say, uh, Hey, I'm the one for you, babe.
1: No, you're the one that needs a shower.
5: I'm Seth Shostak, and... Can we talk? It's Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. We're not the only species that has information to impart. To think about this big concept, let's first think
4: small. There's about a million ants per human. Wait, that means that? It means that ants weigh about as much as humans weigh. That's a lot of ant
5: pleasure. And when you have that many six-legged buddies around, it's chaos, unless you have a good way of communicating.
1: Which ants do, through chemical signals, says entomologist Mark Moffat. He's at the Smithsonian Institution. Some people call him Dr. Bugs. He's a renowned expert on ants, and he's spent so much time crawling, climbing, canvassing on the very small micro level that he can say with some authority.
4: I think individual ants might be smarter than we give them credit for. In fact, I I think ants have personalities. They have things going on in their heads. They have a little mind in there. They're worried about only certain things. They're capable of only comprehending certain things. But, you know, I'm also a photographer with National Geographic. And when I'm stalking an ant, it's the same for me as if I were stalking a leopard. I move in closely with my macro lens, and I see the ant sense me. I can see its body tense, and its antennae go off, and it turns, and I realize I have to hide behind the nearest grass stalk, and I move my camera back. And they look out again, and then I know when I can move forward. And so, you know, the sense of our connectedness with these things is how we actually interpret nature. It's an anthropomorphism, Uh, perhaps. We don't actually know what's going on there, but there's enough going on. Ants actually learn. They get better at things, just like practicing the Stradivarius. There are all sorts of things that individual ants actually do within their limitations that are still quite extraordinary for their size.
5: You you know, occasionally I hear ants being compared to the Borg. Whatever the Borg are, I mean, I'm not quite sure. This is distributed intelligence, a kind of, you know, a concept of aliens. Are, Are ants really like the Borg?
4: Well, yes, they are. And it's interesting because you look at the average science fiction movie about ants, and it's always like the giant ant, and the ants were smart. They'd think, "Why the heck is there a giant? Why would there ever be a giant?" ant. It makes no sense. You see, for insects, the ant is the solution to being large. An army ant society in the Congo can contain millions of individuals. All those individuals add up in weight to more than a human being, and they have more brain cells by about tenfold. And they're they're all spread over the landscape in a way. You know, if a human being tried to survive where these ants are, they would probably starve with that same body mass. But the ants can go out and search every Every nook and cranny, come out with tiny crumbs and end up with a lot of food. They can get killed in numbers. You know, one shot in the brain and we're dead. Ants, you can knock off 10,000 of them, 100,000 of them. They just keep going. But that is the strategy ants use. They simply outnumber the other side. It's shock and awe. So once you get to the level of an army ant, where you're going to have a swarm of 10 million ants coming at you, uh, going uh, 100 feet wide, there's really not much that can get away unless you can run as fast as a human and then you have some chance. But you don't want to leave a baby in a crib in Africa. You don't see a lot of cribs in Ecuadorian Africa. Babies are on your back and cows are not tied up.
5: When, when ants go to war with one another, do they take prisoners? Or do they just exterminate everyone they come across?
4: Well, this is the interest, one interesting thing is that ants do not take prisoners. And this is one reason that ants are what I would call a superorganism. Uh, there's societies function as superorganisms. In humans, we have a chance to defect. We can always, if we're sick of American politics, we could always move to a cave. I guess people still do that. Are there caves around? Um, but yes. ants don't have <laughs> ants don't have those <laughs> possibilities. And ants, you're with your society until you die, even if you're harried and or bothered by the other ants. And in some cases, there are conflicts within societies, and ants will die from them. They still have no option to leave. So this makes them much more like a body, like a human body, than other societies. You know, the cells in your body are all connected because they have chemicals on their surfaces that you're. Immune system detects. And if anything goes wrong, uh, those cells are going to be attacked and killed. Ants have chemicals on their bodies that they detect on each other. And if anything's wrong with them, uh, they're attacked and killed. And uh, those are like national flags, essentially, embedded in the ant's body surface. So they are totally indentured to their society. And what's interesting, of course, about a superorganism, like an ant colony that you'll never see in a human or any other animal you can think of, is that Imagine in your case that you wanted to see what was happening in the room because you're getting bored talking to the entomologist. And your eye could just pop off and wander down the hall and, and see if something's fun down the other place somewhere. Ants can do that. They can spread out. They can do many things at once all the time. We're stuck with our single bodies. But that sort of
5: implies some sort of communal... Neurosystem, right? I mean, all right, so you're saying that those ants, you know, they walk down the hallway, and so they're the remote eyeballs, the remote sensors or whatever they're using to sense anything. How do they get that information back? How do they communicate with all the other
6: ants?
4: Well, they communicate in large part by chemicals. There are ants that use other signals as well. And that's a very effective way of communicating when you're tiny. Little puffs of scent saying what's going on. And they're limited. I mean, there's only so much that they could say what's going down the hall. You know, they can't say a lot. And it's a question of organization. I mean, the neurons in your head... If they were a lot smarter, would it help you be smarter? Probably not because they have to be as dumb as they need to be to connect with just the right neurons for thoughts to emerge. Ants as individuals are smarter than neurons. Uh, Maybe it would actually help them not to be smarter (laughs) but to actually be dumber. So this is the interesting question about the organization of these kind of systems. And the ants have this independence, and that leads to a lot of sloppiness, like the neurons in your head are all connected in very precise ways, so you can retain thoughts and memories and so forth. The ants can't quite do that. They're a little bit too mobile and independent. On the other hand, they can go down the hall and see what's going on, and you're stuck at your desk in front of the microphone.
5: Okay, but they can get some information back to me, like there's food down there of interest to ants, right? And they do that... Chemically? I mean, it, it would take a while for that signal to get back here.
4: Yeah, well, there's a lag time being an ant. As I say, the bigger societies, the ants move really fast. If you go to Africa and see some of these army ants, they are just moving at the speed of light. They are all in a great deal of hurry, and they're going out long distances to gather this information. But lag time has always been a a problem in the human military as well. Now we've transcended that with electronics. So we tend to forget about it. So ants are doing pretty well with what they have. And chemicals can spread out in puffs. Some ants are capable of sensing just a molecule or two, so they can spread a signal over a foot or two distance in a couple of minutes, potentially drawing in all the other ants if there's a big problem locally. Getting information on on long distances still takes a while.
5: I've seen photos of ants where it looks like they've got eyeballs. I can't tell whether they're compound eyes or camera eyes or what kind of eyes. Maybe they're just light spots, whatever. Can they see anything
4: really? Uh, some of the ants see rather well. These tend to be the ants with the smaller societies where the individuals are more independent. Once the societies get bigger and bigger, they tend to draw back into scent. In fact, the army ants, which are most famous for coordinating large groups, are virtually blind. And so they are totally focused on staying integrated with each other, and they never wander off on their own. They are all very tightly organized and they stay together, and scent is everything. They can respond to vibrations. That can indicate a prey is being killed or something, and other ants actually use vibrations. One of the big disasters you create all the time, Seth, is when you're walking along in your yard and you create a catastrophe an ant version of a catastrophe, when you step on all those little ant chambers underground and smash them every time your foot goes down, uh, that usually causes ants of many species to vibrate. This indicates that I am trapped underground. Please dig me up. And all the other ants can start digging away and getting rid of all the imprisoned ants. This oh. happens. This is the biggest disaster you cause for the lives of ants probably every day.
5: Well, and inadvertently, I have to say, I will apologize in case I did do something terrible. I, so that, that, the vibrations, I mean, that isn't very different from hearing. Do they, do they have any capability to hear?
4: I think most of their hearing does go through the ground, as is true with many kinds of insects. So they're detecting vibrations through the ground rather than through the air.
5: Okay, but I've heard it said that ants can squeak.
4: This is called stridulation. They do this when they're buried, but they also do it if you pick one up and you watch the ant wave, its little rear end or abdomen or gaster around. They're actually creating a little squeak. You get a big enough ant, you can put it to your ear and actually hear this. This is their alarm call.
5: Mark Moffitt, thanks so much for talking with me.
4: Thanks so much, Seth.
5: Adventures Among
1: Ants, a global safari with a cast of trillions, is the book of one entomologist at the Smithsonian Institution, Mark Moffat.
4: I tell you, gentlemen,
2: science has agreed
6: that unless something is done and done quickly, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, will be extinct within a year.
1: You know, ants are so numerous and clever, it's a wonder that they don't rule
5: us. Well, in some ways, it kind of sounds like they do. And, of course, ants did take over the planet in the 1954 sci-fi movie Them, which was set during the Cold War of the era of atomic tests. The premise was that some radioactive fallout from one of those tests turned ordinary ants into giant, eight-foot-high-at-the-shoulder mutant creatures.
0: So terrifying, so hideous, there is no word to describe
5: them. Which are, of course, mongo-sized ants. These giant ants attack locals in New Mexico, but hey, life's dull in the desert. So a couple of the queens fly to Los Angeles and build an underground lair in the sewer system where they plan to raise a nest of tiny ants bent on taking over the world when they grow up. Bummer for Los Angeles, so the National Guard is sent out to battle these formic acid-wielding guys with guns and flamethrowers.
1: I should check out this movie, Them. You know what? I'll go with some friends. Then we can check out them.
5: Yeah, I got to say that this, <laughs> this movie made me sick for days. It was so scary.
1: You know, early on, Mark said that the weight of all ants equals that of all humans. But what if you had a single super ant like the ones in this movie, and it weighed the same as a human or even more? I mean, physically, would that be possible?
5: I think not. If you have an exoskeleton like an ant and you're eight foot high at the shoulder, you collapse under your own weight.
1: So the little legs couldn't support him
5: or Even her. their big legs. No, it would be unseemly, it would be messy, and you'd have a lot of people screaming.
1: Ah, uh-huh. that brings us back to communication coming up. Now, Mark Moffat said that ant communication is like that of the neurons in the brain talking to each other. But how do neurons communicate?
5: Discover the special brain cells that send messages to other brains without you ever uttering a word. It's Can We Talk
1: on Big Picture Science.
5: So we know that ants communicate by sending out chemical packets of information, but there are other modes of getting your point across, even if you don't really intend to.
1: Neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran is director of the Center for Brain and Cognition at the University of California in San Diego. And over the course of his distinguished career, he's landed on more than a few lists of most influential people for his innovative research regarding the neurological origins of behavior and how brains detect stimuli and respond. Now, Dr. Ramachandran, I'm smiling right now because I'm happy, but you're smiling too. Now, is that happiness or polite etiquette?
0: Well, in this particular instance, I feel happy, but often it's polite etiquette.
5: Okay, but in other instances, the grin might be prompted by mirror neurons. These are brain cells devoted to paying close attention to what others do and then prompt us to imitate them through gestures or emotion. It's a kind of silent communication that's simpatico with others.
1: Mirror neurons were first discovered in monkeys in the 1990s in the premotor cortex. This is where motor commands originate. A monkey watches another monkey reach and grab a peanut. So monkey see, monkey do, right? Well, in this case, the observer monkey doesn't do, but his mirror neurons fire as if he himself had reached for the
0: peanut. So let's take my motor neurons, my motor command neurons. So I have a neuron in my brain that will fire when I reach out and grab a peanut. Now, some of these peanut-grabbing neurons will fire when I watch you reaching out and grabbing a peanut. So this is not any telepathy or psychic ability. What's going on is that neuron, when it's firing, my brain, whatever is reading the signal higher up in the brain, is saying the same neuron is firing as would fire if I were to reach out and grab the peanut. Therefore, I infer that that's what this young lady is intending to do. She's reaching out and He's about to reach out and grab a peanut. So it's a quote-unquote mind-reading neuron, also called a mirror neuron. It's doing a virtual reality simulation of what's going on in your brain. And that, of course, is the—you get similar neurons for emotional expression. You have similar neurons for pain, so similar neurons for sensations like touch. So if somebody touches my left thumb, my right sensory cortex, there's a particular set of neurons that fire. When they fire, they signal to the brain, my left thumb is being touched. Again, about 10% of those neurons will fire when I simply watch you being touched on. Nothing is being touched on me, but I'm just watching your thumb. So the same neuron fires. And the question is, how does that neuron know you're being touched or I'm being touched.
1: So you say that the mirror neurons in your brain fire if you see me pick up a peanut. The mirror neurons fire. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that then you pick up a peanut too or you feel the sensation of picking up a peanut. You have these neurons firing, and, and what does that mean to your body physically?
0: Well, first of all, it means, that, it means that I can infer your intention. That's the first thing it means. Secondly, it means there's an irresistible urge to imitate you. Actually, Darwin observed this first. You notice that when you're watching somebody cut with a pair of scissors, this is especially true in children, the child's jaws clench and unclench unconsciously. And this is undoubtedly due to mirror neurons. But of course, I don't go around mimicking or miming everything you do. I mean, that would be terrible. Uh, the reason that happens is there's frontal inhibition. The Further anterior regions of the frontal lobe go and inhibit the activity, partially inhibit the activity of the motor neurons, stopping the activity from spilling over into your motor cortex and actually making you mime everything you see. Because but when there's frontal lobe damage, people do indeed start imitating other people
1: because that would be the big question is if we have this, these mirror neurons that create a kind of sympathetic um, understanding of what it is other people are doing, we would spend all our time having this understanding of what everybody else is doing and there would be no cohesion to what it is that we were doing or no independent thought. So we'd spend all our time just mirroring other people.
0: But, but it's not, you don't just have mirror neurons. You have regular motor neurons. You have other neurons in your brain. You're computing all sorts of things about the world and about other people. So, uh, that I don't see that as a problem. There is a tendency to imita- imitate or mime what people are doing, and that may actually be useful in imitating complex skills and learning skills. But, the, but this irresistible urge is in it damped down by frontal structures, which when damaged, releases the damping and you start actually miming what other people do, it's called echopraxia.
1: So it's clear that there are motor mirror neurons, but there are also emotional mirror neurons. So if I feel sad, or earlier as I was happy, somewhere in you, the mirror neurons are firing that feel that same emotion?
0: Well, it's complicated. They're miming the same emotional expression, and that probably involves mirror neurons. As regards the affect, you know, the, the, the experience of emotions, what's going on, we still don't know. We don't have a clear idea. But certainly for pain, empathy of pain, if, I poke, if I, somebody pokes me with a needle, my left thumb with a needle, my anterior cingulate is the region of the brain that fi- cells start firing. That's where you experience pain. Same neurons fire when I watch you being poked with a needle. But of course, I don't shout "ouch" even when I'm watching you poke the needle, because I know the difference between empathy and being literally poked. And the reason for that is my skin is intact. My skin is going back and informing the brain. Don't worry, you're not being poked, right? What? So that's partially vetoing the output of the mirror neuron. It's not completely silencing it because if it did that, there's no point in having a mirror neuron. It's partially vetoing the output, saying, "Empathize by all means, know what it's like to feel that that person's pain, but don't literally feel that person's pain."
1: Finally, the last question is, what would be the evolutionary advantage of mirror neurons?
0: Well, I think the advantage is obvious. It allows you to engage in simulation of what's going on in other people's mind, construct a theory of what's going on in somebody else's mind. You do a form of, quote-unquote, mind reading, but not from telepathy, but just from watching their actions. Instead of thinking of them as automata, machines, you think of them as people with intentions and goals, and infer what those goals and intentions might be.
1: Thank you so much for speaking with us.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it.
5: V.S. Ramachandran is a neuroscientist and director of the Center for Brain and Cognition at the University of California, San Diego. Okay, well, all this talk about brain cells and brains gets us thinking about the origin of behavior. Mirror neurons represent a kind of communication between brains. But humans have gone farther with expressing themselves. We're the only
1: species to have evolved language. That's according to biologist Mark Pagel, which means that it surely must have an adaptive function. Now, we talked earlier about mind-to-mind communication, but that's actually a way to describe our own use of language, says Dr. Pagel. It presents an extraordinary opportunity to tinker with the hardware of another mind.
6: We have been equipped with something like a remote control device that we use for changing the channels on our television. It's just that we send signals through the air, discrete pulses of air that we call words, through the air, and we use them to try to rewrite what's going on in other people's minds. We use our language to try to influence people to do things that we want them to do.
5: Obviously, it could change their behavior. When your mother tells you something as a young child, don't do this, don't do that, that usually does change your behavior or else you'll repeat it. But it sounds like something that's very special because when I think of the way other creatures try and influence their peers or other species and so forth, they don't do it this way. They either implant their genes in some other body or they they, they eat them or whatever.
6: Well, it's really true. I mean, all animals, and really, and even most plants, uh, communicate with each other in the sense that animals will grimace or roar or emit some chemical signal or odor, or they'll have bright colors. But we're the only species that actually has a form of communication that we can call compositional. It's a big word that means we speak in sentences. And so our language has subjects and verbs and objects, like, I kicked the ball. Whereas all other forms of animal communication are really about saying how big you are, or how strong you are, or how fast you are, or maybe how good your genes are, you're able to produce bright colors as a bird, or how dangerous you are, you know, the the horrible odor that a skunk makes, but our language is hugely multidimensional. We can talk about the future, we can talk about the present, we can talk about the past, And really to put it in stark perspective, you know, a gorilla couldn't even say to another gorilla, I'll meet you at the watering hole tomorrow afternoon. And that's just something that for us is absolutely trivial. So speaking is a method of being
5: able to communicate far richer information than being able to bark or growl or something like that. Uh, How did this
6: evolve in humans? It's a very good question. It's a sort of $64,000 question because we are the only species that has language. And I argue in my book that we are the only species that's ever had language. So this would include uh, animals like the Neanderthals that we now know were very closely related to us. And so the question arises, why did language evolve? And, and from a Darwinian perspective, we realize that language had to evolve because it granted the speaker some advantage. We are the only species that has this ability to coordinate our social behaviors in ways that allow us to achieve things that we couldn't achieve on our own. And so a solitary human, we, we instantly recognize as somebody who isn't going to be very successful. And so, our sociality, our complex sociality where we trade and we bargain and we negotiate, required this piece of social technology that that we call language. And so, we could say to ourselves, you know, we could hand language to the chimpanzees or to the gorillas or to the lions, but unless we handed them all of the other cognition we have, my ability to understand what's going on in your mind, my ability to make plans or trade or cooperate with you. Unless we handed them all of that apparatus as well, they wouldn't know what to use language for.
5: Well, let me push on that a little bit more, because there are, of course, other social animals that are fairly intelligent. I'm thinking of the dolphins. And it's said that, you know, they make all sorts of squeaks and squeals and so forth, and that there's some element of language in that. But it's not really conversation in the sense that we know it. Why haven't they developed the ability to form complete
6: sentences Again, it's a a wonderful question because it seems that humans uniquely among all the animals on Earth have what we call a theory of mind that we instinctively recognize that we can sort of make guesses or predictions about what's going on in someone else's mind, what they might want to do. And this theory of mind means that we recognize instantly that we might have things in common or we might have things that are in conflict and we can use language to resolve those things or to exploit those things, the things we have in common. And so indeed it's the case that dolphins have a very sophisticated form of sort of click communication that allows them to sort of organize their behavior, say for hunting or for calling everyone together into a group. But it really stops there. You'll never find a dolphin saying to another dolphin, okay, tomorrow we're going to do the same thing we did today, or tomorrow let's join up with 10 other dolphins. They never do that.
5: Mark, you've written that language evolved to solve the problem of visual theft. That sounds like something untoward down at the art museum. W- what do you mean by that?
6: Part of this idea of the theory of mind we've been discussing is that if I watch you making something. Maybe it's just flaking a hand axe or you're making an arrow or you're shaping a spear. Because I have a theory of mind, I realize that you're making that object for some reason and I'll pay attention to how you make it because I'll realize that the way you're making it tells me something about how it should be used and how I might make a similar copy. Now, again, as surprising as it sounds, we are the only animal that can do that. Lots of other animals can slightly learn or get a push or a nudge in the right direction by observing other animals doing things, but we're the only ones that can exercise this very sophisticated copying or imitation of new and novel things that other humans do. What that means is that we are capable of something I call visual theft, I can steal your best ideas merely by observing what you're doing. So as soon as we acquired this ability to have, you know, conduct or or perform visual theft, we needed a way of resolving the social conflicts that would have arisen. Because now if I watched you flaking a hand axe, you'd have reason to run away and hide from me. So you'd want to withhold your best ideas from me. And our sociality and our tribal system would have collapsed. So we needed language for us to negotiate something. So I watch you make your hand axe, and you say to me, look, what do you have to offer me? I see that you're good at making arrows. What if I allow you to watch me make a hand axe if you allow me to watch you make an arrow?
5: Homo sapiens has been around for on the order of 200,000 years. I assume we've had some sort of language throughout most of that. But civilization and and, in, if you will, modern times, that only goes back less than, uh, I don't know, 5% of that, maybe 10,000 years. And what is somewhat coincidental is that's the time that we invented written language. We invented writing.
6: Written language is very interesting, and you're right to say it's very young. It's about 4,000 years old. And we should remember that written language is really nothing like spoken language. And the first written language was all about keeping records. It was nothing to do with poetry or telling lovely fictional stories. It was about keeping records. It was a, a system of accounting. 4,000 years ago, we could already offload huge amounts of information into far more stable forms so that we could write things down rather than having to remember them. And that's really the the function that, that, that written language took for the first few millennia of its existence. And it's really not until we think, anyway, about the time of Homer that people started using language to tell stories. And even then, when you think about the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's an instructive story. I can see the
5: benefits in being able to offload things. You don't depend on oral traditions and so forth. I can read the thoughts of people from hundreds of uh, thousands of years ago. That's obviously a big benefit in terms of moving forward. But what about the modern phenomenon in which you have young people who, you know, they have these devices that would allow them to talk, called telephones, and yet they seem to prefer to text? What is that
6: saying about language? The really wonderful thing about preferring text communication or emailing to talking on the phone is it takes us right back to the power of language. I mean, language is a very revealing thing. If I come up to you and ask you some question that you don't want to answer, something you might wish to keep private, something you don't want to reveal to me, it puts you in a very awkward situation. And so I think we instinctively recognize that language is this very powerful technology that we can use to coordinate our activities and bring us all sorts of gains. But it's also a technology that we can use to zero in on others and try to find things out about them. And so I think that's why in this sort of modern day, you know, when we could just pick up the phone and talk to anyone, we sometimes prefer text or email or, or tweeting.
5: Well, Mark Pagel, thank you so very much for, well, talking to me.
6: That's yeah, my pleasure.
1: Wired for Culture, Origins of the Human Social Mind is Mark Pagel's book. He's an evolutionary biologist at the University of Reading in the U.K., So it sounds like, Seth, that our inclination to talk and blab a lot is something that is deeply wired within us. And in fact, safe to say this radio show would not exist had language not evolved.
5: (laughs) Well, the thing that disturbs me, Molly, is the fact that Pagel points out that talking is a kind of mind control mechanism that you can control other people's minds. So maybe that's what you're doing to me. And maybe it's what you're doing to me. That would explain a lot. No, no, no. That's certainly not true. Well, coming up. When we do use language, most of us prefer talking. Oh, sure, the speed's slow. It's, what, about two dozen bytes per second? I mean, even dial-up modems are faster than that. I'm emailing Leonard Nimoy on my Commodore 8 for his recipe for artichoke dip. And send.
1: Oh, I have a great one. You take three artichokes, you stem them, you put them in a pot of
5: water. Oh, cool, he got back to me.
1: Later, which you bring to a boil. Then, with tongs, you carefully take out the artichokes and you let them so, uh, now, cool So, speaking is slow, but even so, nothing beats talking a bowl, or
5: a good story, for that matter. Coming up, stir these together. Now, you can. Why our, our brains you love want. once upon a time case, and how to keep native languages from going extinct. Now, it's time it's to can we talk carts. on big picture science?
1: Using a spoon to dig out the artichoke hearts. Now, be careful not to prick yourself on those pointy bits because they're really sharp. Anyway, you put the three artichoke hearts in a bowl. Now you mash them together until they're really
5: good. Welcome back to Can We Talk? And let's get to talking. Really, with all our nifty ways of communicating, we still love to gab. It's efficient. It's expressive. Heck, I figure that if we'd invented the tape recorder before we invented writing, well, we might never have had to invent writing. Uh, just hit record, Socrates. Okay. Well, as I was saying earlier
1: in the Agora, true wisdom comes to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us.
5: Very eloquent and true. This recorder is a new means of capturing ideas. I like it. Yes, I know. We'll, we'll call it the Socratic.
1: Mark Pagel says that
5: written language
1: came about as a means of accounting. It wasn't about storytelling, but Claire Murphy is.
2: Long ago in a town there was a mayor, and he was getting old, he'd soon have to retire, and he needed to pick a suitable replacement. All the townspeople came forward and he asked them to form a line, whoever wanted to be the next mayor. Well, there was a huge line, everyone wanted the job, it was great pay, you'd get to live in a big house. No one wanted the job more than Jack. They all stood in that line, and the mayor came forward, and his hands were full of sunflower seeds. Take two, he said. Plant these in a pot of dirt and bring that pot to me in a month's time. And all of the people took two seeds and ran home. Jack put his seeds in a pot of dirt, he watered it and left it there. Every day Jack tended to that pot of dirt and watered it and cared for it, but there was nothing emerging from the soil. A month passed and all Jack had was a pot of dirt. He took it in his arms and he went down to the mayor's house and he stood in line like everybody else. But everybody else had pots full of the most beautiful, bright, colourful sunflowers you've ever seen. When the mayor came out, it was all Jack could do to hold back his tears. The mayor walked up and down the line and finally he raised his hand and pointed his finger at Jack. You, he said, will be my successor. Jack stepped forward. But sir, sir, there's nothing in my pot. Everyone else has much nicer flowers than me. And the mayor said, oh, yes, I know. But you see, Jack. I boiled all those seeds before I gave them out. Those were not seeds that could grow. You're the only one here who's honest." In Ireland, Claire Murphy tells a lot of
1: traditional tales, mythology and folklore, much of it between 150 and 3,000 years old, with emphasis on Irish mythology. But she's also drawn to global storytelling, including the American Jack stories. Jack
2: is a rogue, he's a fool, he's an idiot and he's very wise and there's a this character exists in all cultures um but he's called Jack. So you know Jack and the beanstalk. Yes. So it's the same character. It's social, always social climber. He's <laughs> exactly. How do you
5: gauge the interest in storytelling? I mean, uh, you know, just from the point of view of science. Mm-hmm. It sounds like storytelling might have a certain survival value, that we value stories.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the reason why storytelling still exists and it's the root of all art forms is because we make meaning out of life through narrative. So we attach meaning to things by creating stories out of them. The way we remember information is by creating a story. So there's been all kinds of research done, scientific research, around the workings of the brain that we are neurologically hardwired to make things, to make uh, experiences into stories in order to be able to remember them. So it plays an integral part in passing on information, passing on wisdom, keeping traditions alive, keeping culture alive.
5: It seems to me, I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? They were not written down until many years after they had been if you will, written, uh, even though they weren't written. Mm-hmm. But, so that was oral tradition. I mean, that was a lot, Absolutely. A lot to memorize for a storyteller, I would think.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so, but the, the funny thing is we know that because we, you know, our culture is based on Greek and Roman civilization and that's what we've come up from. But you've got versions of that in every culture. And you think that's a lot to remember. There's a type of storyteller in India, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, it's, it's B-H-O-P-A, I say a voppa, and they are usually goat herders and they're illiterate, and uh, every year they meet for seven days in the middle of the desert, and they each recite their saga, and it could take seven nights. It could have over 12,000 verses. So, you know, a Western American scientist came in and said, how is this even possible? These guys can't, they can't even read. How can they remember these long sagas, like you're saying about the Iliad and the Odyssey? So they began to study them. And they did one of two things. Uh, they, They began to ask how, you know, how do you pass on the information and 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 the man said, well, I I pick which one of my children will take on this tradition. And at four years old, I start to give him the first sentence. And every day I give him a little bit more. And eventually he has the whole saga in his head. So they asked, you know, somebody who had one of these sagas and he said, uh, how is it you remember the whole saga? And the man said, well, it's like I'm standing on a beach. And I reach down and I turn over the first pebble and, and written on the first pebble is the first line. So it's not that he's reading it, but he's remembering it. It's it's living in that pebble, and then I just keep turning over pebble after pebble. And they took one of these guys, and they taught him how to read. And what do you think happened?
5: Mm. He lost his ability.
2: He lost the saga.
5: It it, it sounds as if we've lost something, in a way, by outsourcing our stories to uh, the written word, to the printed word, or in modern times, uh, recordings or films or whatever, uh, that uh, yes. probably 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, people were better at this than we are today.
2: We've we've lost a little bit of it, and you can see it in... You know, the amazing thing technology has done is be, being able to make us communicate. We can communicate with anybody anywhere on the planet, but our ability to communicate socially is decreasing with every year because we're more used to sitting in front of a computer and typing our status into Facebook rather than talking to someone from across the way. So I do think that that's something is lost nowadays. But but storytelling hasn't gone anywhere, do you know? So it's, it's coming back. So this skill set is constantly being revived.
5: Well, finally, Claire, when you go out to college campuses or public venues where you do your storytelling, uh, I'm sure it's gratifying to see that the audience is paying attention. They're clearly, you know, unlike an academic lecture where they're often not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm suspect it's different for you, but Mm -hmm. for you, what is the most uh, gratifying experience you've had?
2: The most gratifying thing is watching, because you're always watching your audience as you're telling. You're always making eye contact, and you start to see all of the audience going into what I call a state of wonder. And what happens is the eyes widen and the jaw loosens. Because when you're completely relaxed, your jaw drops slightly. So you get this kind of slightly dopey look. And uh, the audience will either lean forward with their bodies or they'll slump back. And the whole posture will sort of unfurl. And they get this faraway look in their eyes, even though they're looking at you. And they come up afterwards and they say things like, I haven't felt like that since I was five. And it's so satisfying.
5: Claire Murphy, thanks so much for uh, being here.
2: Thanks, Seth. Claire Murphy is a storyteller.
5: In her native Ireland, Gaelic language is enjoying something of a resurgence, which may be just enough to keep this native tongue from disappearing. Margaret Norrie would like to see the same thing happen with her native language, Anishna Baimoen.
3: and uh, Michigan Ann Arbor. So I just said I really love teaching and right now I teach at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor.
5: It is there that Margaret Norrie is working to preserve Anishinaabe Moan, sometimes called Ojibwe. She
1: says that many languages go extinct when there is pressure to assimilate, and a large number of native speakers die without passing the language to their children. And in this case, the language is still spoken in the Great Lakes area. That's North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ontario, and some parts of Saskatchewan.
5: And as we've heard, language is more than just passing on information. It can be the embodiment of culture itself. So, how is Margaret Nori rescuing Ojibwe? Well, by pairing this ancient language with modern technology.
3: Anishnabe moen has three meanings embedded into it, and what it basically is implying is that an anishin is how we say good, abe is a human being, and moen is a language or. The way we speak. So to say, N-da Anishinaabe, I'm saying I am Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe Moen is the language. And Da Anishinaabe
1: Mo is to speak that language. But nowadays, it's my understanding that fewer than, say, 10 people born in Michigan grow up speaking Anishinaabe Moen. Why? Why have people stopped speaking it? So
3: both in the United States and Canada as part of our colonial history when people came here one of the things that they wanted was for people to assimilate into the new nation which required kind of forcibly insisting that they use the new language so english was the language of the boarding schools the boarding schools was where young native people were sent to become american
1: and it is about communication but it's about more than that when someone opens up their mouth and they speak the language that you speak, and especially if not many other people do, there's a certain cohesiveness and a sort of bonding connection that you have um, that goes beyond just transmitting information from one person to the other.
3: Absolutely. I think all the time when you have a way to identify yourself and the world around you and make those connections to place in a way that echoes that place and connects to it, so... We try to live up to that expectation of revitalization, which means using the language in schools, in ceremonies, in your home, trying to integrate it into your life in a way that we don't really want to just repeat the words of a dead language. We want to actually revitalize it and have it creatively rippling into the next generation.
1: But, Margaret, languages evolve all the time. Languages are constantly evolving and we don't speak Shakespearean English today and some languages evolve and others die out. And so why is it important to stem the tide of that and and preserve languages when, when in some ways they're all fluid? I think what we mostly
3: want to preserve is the way of thinking. So the fact that our language is 70% or more verbs most of the time when we're speaking. There are times where I write paragraphs and I look at it and I think that's almost 100% verbs with some modifications to the verb. And so what it's saying is this is a way of thinking that is action-oriented. You're constantly assessing where is the action and how are relationships formed. So you're right, intonation, pronunciation, word choice, even syntactic choices might change over time, but that worldview and the core way of assigning meaning to what's happening around you is what we want to preserve.
1: Now, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you're doing that. Your work at the University of Michigan is focused on preserving this language and using technology and social media to do so. So in that way, two different worlds are coming together, the the future high-tech world and this ancient language. Um, how do they come together to preserve Anishinaabemowin? How do you use digital media to do that? So what we do now
3: is really tap into the way people learn. So if I had been doing this in the era of the telephone, I would have probably been recording messages and calling people or trying to have conference calls. I'm doing this in an age where the way people connect with one another is through social media. So we have... Uh, website that's fairly static that we record things on but we record crazy things so when people email me and they say hey will you translate the Eminem ad about the cars in Detroit because we're native people from Detroit and we're proud of what that
1: ad said Eminem the uh, rap singer
3: absolutely because in (laughs) Michigan if you're a Michigan Indian you know Eminem and you're proud of Detroit in a in a special way Detroit was here actually way before the US so we connect those points of pride and identity and then when we do that we record it so you can hear us say what was in that ad and then we tweet that we recorded it and if you're on Facebook then you see that on your newsfeed, and you could go in and comment on our recording and you might say I say it this way or I say it a different way or here's a little recording of me singing it so we get people to start conversations about the language and in the language we create a venue where they can ask questions I told my daughter if she wanted an iPhone, she had to text me in the language. And she does (laughs) to a certain extent. And You know, we we try to infuse it any way that
1: we can. Are the tweets in English or are they they in Anishinaabemowin? We
3: do a little of each. I personally remember as a student being very frustrated by not having a translation, so we rarely put things out there only in the language because I think sometimes that can be a little alienating. Even our best students want to know right away that they can understand it. Sometimes we also are trying to archive. I know that some of the elders that I work with grew up speaking only this language until they were in their teens. And their use of the language, their perspective is so different, and we're never going to be able to have that again. So sometimes we are trying to just
1: archive those speakers that we consider our sources of knowledge. Now, you were talking about translating Eminem, um, but you've taken other famous songs and singers and and recorded their music in your language. And I, I want to see if people can identify this song
3: going ma walk in Boitek, when panad ish peng gojtoyen. Ka wing gona ma go go gojish karein, ki jigang wetai go temega, kapaek neem nongwa it's Imagine by John Lennon, which is a song that we chose because it resonated both with the teachers who were teaching the language and the students who were in class. And it turns out that it created a pretty interesting conversation about society and peace and getting along, and a conversation that was relevant both from a native perspective but also from a very contemporary social co- perspective.
1: So, Margaret, have your efforts on Facebook, YouTube, singing, and also, of course, the work you do at the university to preserve and keep Bemo and language alive. Have they been successful, and how does one measure success in a situation like this?
3: They have been successful to the extent that I know more students who are proficient when they leave, and I would definitely say that's measurable success. But we go to a lot of funerals, and I think that when we're at those funerals, if we don't see young people in the community that are picking up the language, we do get a sense of imbalance. So I think we have a real struggle over the next 10 or 15 years to ensure that students at the very young age are learning the language, becoming proud of the language, and it isn't just something that you might choose to study in college.
1: Margaret Norrie, thank you very much for speaking with us. How do you say thank you in Anishinaabemowin?
3: you would say, g'migwetchin.
5: Okay, I'll try that.
1: G'migwetchin. Nahao
3: g'migwetchin gigin, which is thanks to you as well.
5: Margaret Norrie is a poet and linguist and director of the Comprehensive Studies Program at the University of Michigan, specializing in Ojibwe. Do you speak other languages, Seth? Well, poorly. I speak some French. I used to be able to get by in Paris. And, of course, I speak Dutch after living there for more than a dozen years. Those are two languages that probably aren't going to disappear anytime soon. French will not because of the Académie Française. And Dutch, I, I always worry about Dutch. But one group of people that don't worry about Dutch disappearing are the Dutch.
1: Now, if we were to make contact with an intelligent civilization somewhere else... Would they have language?
5: Well, of course we don't know, but I would think so. I mean, simply because language is a very efficient way of communicating. You don't have to have sight lines. You know, I can can talk to you even if I can't see you. You get a certain amount of uh, information uh, that way. I mean, if they have an atmosphere, they'll... Learn about making sounds. I'm sure of it. Does it have to be a spoken language or acoustic? Well, I would think so, yeah. It has to be, because, I mean, you know, maybe maybe they're communicating by writing <laughs> one another, but that means they have to invent writing before they invent speaking.
1: <laughs> Thanks to our talkative production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Tanya Lewis.
5: Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your
1: ears have been attuned to Can We Talk? You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to our Facebook page, Big Picture Science, and become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well.
5: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you like your talk to traverse the ether... Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
3: So you want it pulverized, and then
1: you can spread it on a cracker. Now, I wouldn't pick just any cracker because you want the cracker to have some heft, maybe a little bit of salt for flavor. If it's too thin, then the artichoke dip just sort of weighs down the cracker, and that's no good. Anyway, so you pick your cracker. Now you put a little bit of dip on